Hello, everybody. This is Queer Voices, a home-produced podcast that has grown out of a radio show that's been on the air in Houston, Texas for several decades. This week, Brian Lavinka talks with Ian Haddock of The Normal Anomaly about events coming up and Ian's philosophy of life. It's all cyclical. All of it makes sense soon enough. Just do your best where you are. And before you know it, this little moment will be but a memory, Um, but you'll get to take the skills, you'll get to take the knowledge, the wisdom, you'll get to take the persistence, the work ethic with you, and that will make all the difference. Aaron Coleman has a conversation with Rachel Dixon, director of the play Colored Water, currently showing at Stages Theater. And Brian has an interview with J.D. Arnold, who has been a mainstay DJ at gay clubs in Houston for 30 years. He is now retiring. I want the last part of my life to be different. I think it's time, you know, I've outgrown the clubs. It's time to move on. And I don't want to cloud my decision by still being thinking about what I was doing before. And we have news wrap from This Way Out. Queer Voices starts now. This is Brian Levinka, and today I'm interviewing Ian Haddock of The Normal Anomaly. Ian, welcome to Queer Voices. Hi, Brian. How are you? I'm always excited to talk to you, Ian, about the work that you're doing. So what is The Normal Anomaly for people that may not know? The Normal Anomaly Initiative is an organization that really centers Black queer people um, trying to overcome barriers and create new norms. And so we do that through direct services advocacy efforts, capacity building, and creating um, braver spaces. When you talk about obstacles, can you elaborate on that some more? Normal Anomaly um, was created as a blog to kind of normalize what marginalized people often feel. And so we talked about everything from rape culture to things that were more lighthearted, like favorite movies, right? And so what we found out uh, as a blog originally was that there were a lot of consistent things that were coming up that were deeper than some of the surface conversations we were having. And so that's when we moved towards having an actual organization that focuses on, you know, removing those barriers. So obstacles like things going on in the current legislation uh, that's being brought up, obstacles such as, you know, uh, Black gay men having a one in two chance of contracting HIV in their lifetime, obstacles such as um, over 80% of trans deaths are trans uh, women of color, uh, more specifically, Black women of color you know, obstacles such as employment and transportation um, and so on and so forth. Um, What you'll find is that when you look at both intersections of like queerness and of race, so, you know, social and racial issues, you'll find at the very lowest points in many disparities, both health, uh, societal and economic, you'll find, uh, you know, Black queer people are at the lowest 
are at the most disparity, rather. And so we wanted to create an organization that began to change that and to create an infrastructure that could sustain uh, the changes that we desire to enact. What are your biggest accomplishments with the Normal Anonymity? Right now, I can start with what we're doing right now. Right now, we have an STI self-testing component that we're working on. And so we started this this component and program in December, and we're collaborating with AIDS Foundation Houston for treatment. Um, So we, we had a goal of 200 people to engage with our STI self-testing program. And so far within less than two months, we have had over 150 people initiated. And so we're really excited about that because it really shows the need for people to have the confidence in an organization that will allow them to do this privately, discreetly in their own home. And it's a super simple process. And so we're we're elated that we could be an organization that could help eliminate the barrier to getting getting tested. And we're seeing such a phenomenal response with that. Uh, also, we were a part of HIV Prevention Trials Network study number 096, um, which is uh they're calling it a beta. Uh, building equity through advocacy. So we were a part of the pilot study. Um, we were one of four field teams and we were able to uh, engage with a hundred black gay men to get them as a part of the study. And we were excited because we finished our portion of the study four months early. Um, and we were a part of the reason why they have expanded the study to a couple different cities uh, going forward. So super excited about that. And one of the things that are probably of the, the largest note um, is we've done a lot of advocacy with uh, celebrities, including working with Cheryl Lee Ralph uh, on a YouTube um, video. We worked with the uh, baby uh, to have a conversation around his homophobic and serophobic comments. Uh, and we were a part of Lil Nas X baby registry, which was one of the ways that last year we launched our first Texas's first also black queer music festival, um, which happens to be coming back this year. I was going to ask you about that, but first I wanted to find out a little bit about yourself. Where do you come from? I'm originally from uh, right outside of Houston in Texas City, Texas. Uh, so I've been in Houston since uh, on and off since 2006. Um, Houston is home for me. Uh, most people from Texas City would say that Texas City is is much different than Houston. But um, I would argue that it's just a bigger uh, Texas City. Uh, it feels like home. It feels like family. Um, this is where my life is. This is where um, I found love and not nece- necessarily romantic or otherwise, but really um, found love of myself, found love in people, found love in communities. So I'm super, super, um, just super comfortable in this city. It's, it's, it's my home. Who are your inspirations? Those inspirations go far and wide. Um, I will say that before I give names to my my inspirations, I will say I'm inspired by people 
who choose to show up um, no matter how difficult it, it is, no matter how uncomfortable it may be um, for the betterment of people and for the betterment of community. I think about people like Brandon DeHoyos, who is the Director of Community Engagement at ABC 13. I think about you, Brian. We talk about this often. Uh, you ch- you show up in a lot of different spaces to, you know, really advocate for people in a way. Many times you you know may not even be affected by. Uh, I'm I'm inspired by. I always say this name: Harrison Guy and mm-hmm. Nathan Maxey, um, who are people that really um, put everything they have into community, everything they have into their life. I'm. You know, I'm inspired by people like Nisha the Diva, uh, who's a local club promoter here in Houston and uh, just doing some phenomenal things. And But most of all, in this season of my life, I'm inspired by the team of people I wake up and work with 40 plus hours a week. Uh, people like Kimberly Thomas, James Drake and Brutus Dwayne, uh, who are the newest people on the team. Uh, but many of the anybody that knows me have has seen me with uh, Jordan Edwards and Joel Baya Uzori Esputes, who uh, they are just phenomenal people. They definitely make me look better than I am. But the reality is, they just really believe in community. They really hope for the best while challenging the very worst, and um, and that inspires me for sure. What advice do you have to your younger self now that we're kind of at a certain age? What would you say going back a couple of years? I would say to my younger self that it's all cyclical. Like everything that you're learning, some of the things seem stupid. Some of the things seem like irreverent and 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 not really placed for you. Mm-hmm. I was actually just thinking about this before I hopped on. Um, I hopped on with you. I was thinking about like, there are so many things that I'm doing right now that if the universe had not put me in particular places that really didn't seem like it fit me, I don't think that I ever uh, would be in the space of happiness that I'm in currently. Like I'm designing flyers. I never wanted to design flyers. I hate doing creative stuff like that. But I was in a job that the only budget they had for somebody to design flyers was me. And so now I have to design flyers. And I'm so grateful that I had to do that. But there are some like really deep things. There were some times when I didn't get things right in community. There were times when community gave me some backlash and I didn't know how to have integrity and step up and speak up and apologize. Um And if I hadn't went through those moments, it's no way I could lead with community. It's no way I could be a leader that has egalitarian principles. It's no way I could be about equity and sit in some of the spaces that I was in. And so I would definitely tell my younger self that it's all cyclical. All of it makes sense soon enough. Just do your best where you are and before you know it, this little moment will be but a memory, um, but you'll get to take the skills, 
You get to take the knowledge, the wisdom. You get to take the persistence, the work ethic with you, and that will make all the difference. What advice would you have for younger generations that are coming up in the community? Enjoy it. Enjoy the journey. I'm sitting with that question as I really just replay some of the things that I see going on in community and some of the things that I remember myself dealing with. And there was no way in hell that I would have thought that I would be this person, that I would have this kind of influence. I never felt seen, um, not to quote Kirk Franklin, but I never felt good enough. Um, and there were so many times that I felt like I would always be the underdog, um, that I would always be an imbecile, that I was, I would always be unattractive, like no one, no one would see me. Um, and so looking at myself now through therapy, through living some, through wisdom, through mentorship and menteeship, um, I'm here. And I feel good and I feel validated and I feel seen. Uh, and I and I don't know what the shift is. All I know is that I participated and actively participated in the process. And so I would say to, you know, the younger generation to enjoy this, enjoy the journey. Um, surely it's not always going to be beautiful. Surely. It's not always going to be easy. Surely there's going to be some struggles and, you know, some and some and some trials, but there are going to be a lot of triumphs. There are going to be a lot of learning. And when you get to where you're going, um, none of those things stop. You still will have more struggles and trials. Um, but the but you'll know that you can get through it. Um, and so enjoy it. Have fun. Um, and, and really just like live in the present, like stop comparing what you will become because that's already, you know, a part of your destiny. You recently joined the board of the Texas Pride Impact Funds. Can you tell me what that's about? So it's my first state board. So I've done a lot of work nationally and obviously with the normal anomaly, we do a lot of stuff locally, but I've never done work nationally in Texas. So um, the the being on the board with you, Brian, um, of Texas Pride Impact Funds, you know, Texas Pride Impact Funds is an organization, a grant making organization, um, but more than a grant making organization across the state of Texas. It also really is about like equity and, and capacity building uh, and creating moments for all the areas in Texas, um, including you know, not, you know, not excluding our metro areas, but also being really intentional about including the areas that are overlooked. Um, and that, and that goes for actual regions. Um, but it also goes for, you know, race and gender, um, and orientation, right? As it relates to the spectrum of queerness. It is really, really cool. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm still fairly new. Uh, but I am learning a lot and uh, I really appreciate the fact that everybody on the board has a really um, 
they're very smart, but they're super open-minded. Uh, no one is stuck on themselves and stuck on trying to make this look the best for them. Uh, shout out to Ron, uh, the executive director. Ron is so fantastic, uh, so amazing, such a trailblazer and such a necessary uh, part of the community across Texas. And I'm just really elated to be able to work with you, Brian, um, work with Ron and work with Jody and, and Bob and, and everybody there, Naomi and Ahmad. It's really, really cool, um, to, to be in this space. Um, and for this to be my first, um, active kind of advocacy. Um, and volunteering on a statewide level. We're speaking with Ian Haddock about his activism, and we're going to talk about the Black QAF Festival. What is that, and how did it get started? The Black Queer Advancement Festival really uh, was an idea that came out of some of the activism that we're doing at the Normal Anomaly. Um, so originally, it was this idea we have a program called Project Liberate, which is a nine-month program that develops entrepreneurs and nonprofit leaders. And the goal for them is to launch or relaunch their, their brand or their business or their organization uh, in front of community. And so in our action planning for this program, we thought, well, what would be a great way to launch their businesses? Let's do a music festival. Um, and so we started looking at what kind of niche we could find. And we decided to do a black queer music festival and we call it the black queer advancement festival. This year we have expanded it. Um, you know, first I want to go back. This is your second year, right? This is the second year. This is the second year. And I want to go back to give a little bit more of the history of why we're on the weekend that we're on. So historically, uh, that weekend is Houston Splash. Uh, it will, it still runs concurrently with the Black Queer Music Festival. Um, but that is Houston Splash and that's Black Pride. Um, and so we wanted to do things in concert. Uh, that could bring attention, bring some excitement, bring some revenue uh, to the city, um, both outside of what we do in our organization, just like from an economic standpoint, but also and more specifically to the businesses that we're launching. So we thought that if people... Uh, that look and love like us are going to be in the city for this weekend in the first place. This would be a great avenue to launch these businesses such that th they can be in the best space to, to move forward um, after our program. And so this year, um, as we, we talked about is our second year and we are expanding. So um, we will have the music festival, uh, which is headlined by, uh, two artists named Ken the Man and Kid Ken. Um, they are on the queer spectrum, um, and that's really cool. We also have a performance by Kiki Wyatt. Um, she was on R&B Divas. She's done a lot of covers to like Patti LaBelle and uh, Stephanie Mills. She is a powerhouse. She's done some gospel music. She's 
uh, arguably one of our most popular uh, acts that's going to be on the stage. And we also have a uh, returning seven deep uh, who is who was really popular last year and is also a black queer artist. Uh, one of our hosts is going to be Greg Mathis Jr. Uh, you probably have heard of his father, who is Judge Mathis. He was also on Mathis Family Matters. Him and his partner are both are going to be coming out here. They did come out actually on uh, the TV show this last year. So super excited for the festival. Um, and then we have five other events um, that will be going on throughout that weekend in collaboration with Gatekeepers, Charles Law Archive, Impulse Group Houston, St. Peter United, and many, many, many many other collaborating partners. I don't think we mentioned the date. What was the date of that? It is the week or weekend of May 3rd through May 7th. The uh, music festival is May 6th. Um, we have a Sunday service um, and a beach party at Balmoral Crystal Lagoon in Humble, Texas on May 7th. May uh, 4th through the 5th is the uh, advancement forum where we will um, be highlighting our black our, our first cohort of black pride hall of famers more to come on that and then on may 3rd we will be having mr and miss black queer af pageant which will be hosted by alexius paris at hamburgers mary's houston tell me about the venue that you picked for this festival yes yeah, so we decided to go north, North Houston. No one ever goes North Houston. It's a place called Stampede Houston. Um, and the reason why we went to Stampede is because we really wanted to find a concert venue that really, um, when you walked in, you felt like it was Texas. Uh, and this is, um, normally it is a country music, uh, uh, concert venue. Uh, but we use it. It is super Texas, but it is also super queer friendly. Um, we have some exciting, exciting things happening, not just the stage, but we have attractions. We're going to have bull riding and axe throwing. Uh, we're going to have some, some animals at the front greeting everybody, uh, just because we're extra like that. And they're going to be cute and queer themselves. Um, and so it's going to be a lot, a lot of fun. Um, and I, and I also want to say that even though it's called the Black Queer AF, uh, music festival and Black Queer AF Week. Uh, that is to center Black queer people, but that is not to exclude anybody. We want everyone to come. Uh, I think if we center uh, the most marginalized, then that makes sure that everybody uh, will feel welcome with open arms. And if last year was any indication uh, of the fun that we'll have, then this year is going to be absolutely bonkers. We've been speaking with Ian Haddock about the Normal Anomaly and the Black QAF event. Ian, where can people find out more information about the Normal Anomaly and the festival itself? Yes. So everything is housed on our website. That's normalanomaly.org. Uh, 
If you're looking specifically for the Advancement Festival information, all of that is on normalanomaly.org backslash BQAF. Uh, pretty simple, normalanomaly.org. And for the Black Queer Advancement Festival, it's backslash BQAF. Well, Ian, thank you for coming on. And if you're not following Ian, follow him on social media. Yes, I'm pretty interesting. It's Ian L. Haddock, I-A-N-L Haddock, like the fish. Still to come on Queer Voices, Aaron Coleman's conversation with Rachel Dixon, director of a play currently showing at Stages Theater, and Brian's conversation with J.D. Arnold. I'm Aaron Coleman, and you're listening to Queer Voices on KPFT 90.1 FM. Today, we're speaking with Rachel Dixon, director of the play Call It Water, currently showing at Stages Theater until March 31st. Greetings, Rachel. Thank you for being here. Greetings, Aaron. Glad to be here. Can you tell us a little little bit about you and your journey as a director? I started out in the Houston community in 1997. So I've been here a while. I came to be here for one year. (laughs) And to the date, I stood where I was and said, I think I'll stay longer. And (laughs) as you see, that's been a really long time. Three children, a husband, two degrees later. Um, (laughs) And I moved here from the Chicago market, having gotten my MFA at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And in my time here since 97, I functioned primarily as an actor, but over the course of time, fortunate enough to work as a dramaturg and a facilitator of educational experiences and workshops and being a teaching artist and doing some crew work, stage management, prop mistress, done a little bit of all of it. (laughs) Right now, I am the Bold Associate Artistic Director at the Ensemble Theater. And that relationship began in this capacity about four and a half years ago now. So I've been doing this particular job with that institution and still working around uh, Houston when I can and around this, the country when I can, uh, working on other projects as, as a director or an actor primarily. Well, you're my home girl because I grew up in Chicago. Ah, yes. I'm a Midwest girl for sure. <laughs> <laughs> About the play uh, Colored Water and the playwright Erica Dickerson Despenza, <laughs> whom I gathered is queer, Can you tell us about her impetus for writing about the Flint, Michigan water crisis? From in conversations with her, she had begun to gather information about that experience and put a a large collage up on her wall because she is very much an artivism creator. She uses her art to speak to things Mm -hmm. in the world that concern her. She feels strongly about representing women in art that uplifts their story, tells their story. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think she was working on some other project and uh, in the process of that came across the pieces about this Flint story. So she began to collect information, which she says she did and had a huge collage on her wall. And once that was all there, she said about a year later, she didn't think about it in terms of creating or what to create for the story until about a year later. And then she sat down and wrote this piece in four days. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Do you know if she spent time in Flint to get a feel for the story? I do not know if she spent time in Flint. I know she talked to lots of people, but I don't know if she physically went to Flint to do that. I read that the play was the winner of the 2021 Smith Blackburn Prize, Mm -hmm. which must be a prestigious honor. 
It is. And I believe she will be here at the end of February to lift up the Smith Buckburn Award. Yeah, it's pretty exciting that we get to hang out in the words of this creative who is being acknowledged for really great work. In your bio, I read that you have ties to the Ensemble Theater. The founder, the late, great George Hawkins, was a personal friend of mine. And the current director, Eileen Morris, has kept his legacy alive. Can you tell me about your connection to the ensemble? I am so honored to serve there right now as the associate artistic director, working with Miss Eileen Morris, kind of as her her junior or right hand, or depending on how you look at it. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I assist with the programmatic components at the theater, so I get to, you know, experience George's legacy through the art that we create, you know, uplifting mm-hmm. our mission. So, like I said, I've been there since um, 97. My first project there was in 1997. And in the last four and a half years serving as the Associate Artistic Director under, like you said, Miss Eileen, uh, she, this, the program that funds me is called the A Bold Grant. And they focus on empowering female leadership in the arts. So there were initially five theaters. Now there's eight, I believe, female artistic directors who received the grant. And part of the charge of that was to employ a junior, if you will, associates or directors, or in our case, we have brought on many different kinds of uh, positions that are female uh, held positions for the purpose of growing female leadership. So I, I, it's quite an honor to to be there and work under Miss Eileen. I'm sad I did not get to meet George, but. Can you tell me about some of the other works that you've been associated with? Uh, I read in your bio, you, you did something about the, uh, the Billie Holiday story. Audra uh, <laughs> McDonald was, uh, was in that play. Well, part of my bold artistic associate experience is growing me as a leader. So so part of what I felt strongly about was working with other institutions, understanding how they function for the purpose of being able to identify with different size organizations, organizations with different missions, organizations that, that function differently than the ensemble does. So that's part of how I Develop this relationship with stages. I am so grateful for Kim McLaughlin, who spends time with me talking regularly about my journey in leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he did provide an opportunity for me to direct a Lady Day. And that was quite a joyful experience with Dakina Moore as our um, Billy. She was fabulous. Wow. <laughs> um, and, and so just being able to do that show with the one person cast and two musicians and now do this piece with five women has been amazing. Uh, other things that I have done around in is particularly in my bold journey is directing the whiz, which is a whole different experience because it's a mm. large cast. And that was done at Texas Southern wow. and being able to work at HSPVA and work with a group of students doing a, a, William Ng piece, which is very different than the Wiz and very different than this. I got to direct a two-person show, Dutch Masters at Northern Stage, which was great fun and really intense because it was done on Zoom. I was on uh-huh. Zoom and they were on Zoom through rehearsals and then they went into the space and I stayed on Zoom. Wow. And so that was that was a journey. But lot, my goal has been to to explore lots of different kinds of work that will help me deepen my experience as a director and be able to manage different kinds of work. 
back before I realized I'm going to direct <laughs> uh, very early in my career, I had I joyfully got to work on some Houston Ebony Opera Guild pieces and got to um, work on a few pieces that went out to Miller Outdoor Theater. So mm-hmm. it's been a, it's been a vast journey of different kinds of work along the way. Back to Colored Water, what do you hope that the audience takes away from viewing the play? My hope is they will take away the complexity of African-American life, the importance of fighting for whatever it is you believe in, fight. And as the playwright views it as a call to action, well, my hope is that from our production that they do, the audience does receive that call for action. So it's a, a drip of water that makes a ripple is the idea, right? Colored water. That yes. drip of water makes a ripple and it affects all of us. Even oh, if it's across, across the globe, it affects you. And so what can you do to help it or change it or move it? Or Is there anything that you'd like to share with the, the listening audience? This piece has something for everyone. Uh, I have been asked if it's a specific group of women in a specific town dealing with a specific issue, what's it have to do with everyone else? In its specificity, it is broad. There And there, there's something for everyone. We all know family, whether we like it or not. We know <laughs> the idea of family. We know conflict. We know pain, we know hurt. And then more specifically, we know healthcare, we know having a job, paying bills, or having children, or having grandparents, or having parents. I mean, there's so many dynamics in the piece. We're all connected. We're all connected. And the Yoruba piece in this play makes it very clear, and the playwright has a connection to this world where the past is the present, is the future, all in the now. Wow. And and this play is is has spoonfuls for everyone, has drips for everyone, we say. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you for for being here and and sharing your time and your your journey, Rachel. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. This is Queer Voices. This is Brian Lavinka, and it is my great honor to interview today J.D. Arnold from Houston, famous DJ who, if you've ever been to a club in the last 30 years, you probably have heard him spin. So, J.D., welcome to Queer Voices. Well, thank you very much, and thank you very much for having me here. So, your career, how did you get started, and where did you come from? Well, I'm from England, from the south coast of England, and I got started in Brighton when I was 18, 19. I went to a a, a club in Brighton and decided I could do much better than the DJ was doing, even though I'd never done it before. And I told the owner of the club that. And he said, well, go on then. So I did. And that's how it all started. And how did you end up in Houston? Ah, well, before I came to Houston, I went, I spent a year or two DJing in Brighton before going over to the Netherlands, DJing there in Germany, and then going back to Brighton. Then I came uh, over to Texas. My best friend had moved here. And I came over to visit him. And, uh, you know, when he first said, come to Houston, I was like, why? You know, my idea was going to New York or San Francisco or Florida or something, you know. And I'd done Florida already. But I, you know, I wanted to see my friend Robbie. So I came here and I loved it. I found the people 
so engaging and believe it or not i didn't even while well, i arrived here the first week of september so it was like peak heat uh, there was a hurricane hovering off the coast and i still loved it so it was kind of meant to be you know houston is like a, a fungus it kind of grows on you over time <laughs> what a lovely way of putting it you started in i guess was it babylon or was it numbers at the time it was babylon at the time before that, I'd actually done a, a bar, which was the Venture Inn. Um, but the first nightclub that I played was Babylon, when it was Babylon. And the first guests that we had uh, that I got to work with, I believe the very first one was Divine. And I had no idea who Divine was. I was quite shocked, you know, being a little British boy. It's like, we don't have this kind of filth. Of course we do. What other clubs have you played? I know you were at Riches for a while. 19 years, yes. I've played at different times. I've played most of the clubs in Houston. Um, but do you mean overall or just in... Overall, please. Uh, well, in England, it was down in Brighton. I played Heaven in London, uh, which is still going strong, which I can't believe. Um, I played Incognito in Dusseldorf. I played Club Swar in Arnhem, uh, D.O.K. in Amsterdam. And over here, I've played all sorts of clubs all over. I can't even list them. Um, I really enjoy playing the Abbey in L.A. And uh, a friend of mine have a club in Denver that I like playing. Yeah, lots and lots of clubs. And what has been your favorite overall? Favorite all, overall would, would be here. I just love the people here, the crowd here. They've always been good to me. So I'm sure you have some stories. What's some kind of behind the screen or behind the stage stories that you have? Behind the screening stories? Hmm. That has been a lot. I mean, my first interview as a DJ in Houston was the owner of the club, lifted me up, put me on the bar, and one of his friends sucked my toes, and that was my interview. I was like, I am not in England anymore. This is very different and very weird. So you recently did your last set as a DJ at Numbers where you started. Can you tell me about that night and what was it like? It was absolutely amazing. For me, it was the um, Mystery and Fantasy Mardi Gras Ball. And they had booked it at Numbers for the first time this year. And I've been playing that party for a around about 20 years, and it had never been at Numbers. But Numbers being the location that I started my American career, um, I thought that would be the perfect place to end my DJ career, to go back to Numbers and play in that same space, except it was Babylon when I first played it. The Mardi Gras part of the evening was from 6 p.m. till 10 p.m., and uh, I got a chance to play a lot of the the disco, uh, fun stuff, the memories, you know, uh, from that period. And then at 10 o'clock, I went a little darker and got to be the real me as a DJ uh, part of me. I, I got to play some of the memories that I had created in the clubs here. And uh, it, so many friends showed up. There was a line at the door waiting to hug me, which is probably why I got this congestion that i've got this week somebody infected me 
but it was so well worth it. it. It created a memory that I will have for the rest of my life. Why now? Why hang up the DJ's equipment this time? At this time, I just feel like I've tried to retire so many times before. Uh, if I don't slam the door shut, I will never make it. You know, I needed to slam the door shut so I can stop living as the DJ and see what else is out there. I want to. I want the last part of my life to be different. I think it's time, you know, I've outgrown the clubs. It's time to move on. And I don't want to cloud my decision by still being thinking about what I was doing before. And so that's why I'm doing it now. And I'm going to Belize in two weeks. So my eyes will be wide open looking for opportunities. I was going to ask what you were planning on doing after you finished DJing. And since like travel will be part of that. Absolutely. It's always been uh, a very big part of my life. Uh, if you grow up in England, the first thing you want to do when you're, you're a teenager is get the hell out. Let's go visit somewhere else. And uh, I started going on like school trips. I did a, a trip to Switzerland was the very first one when I was 12. And then when I was 14, I did a Mediterranean cruise with the school which was an educational cruise. And then I traveled so much with my parents uh, driving throughout Europe. It's, it's just a part of being British. I think you have to travel <laughs> with English right. weather. You need a beach, you know. And you're so close to everything that's right there in Europe. How would you describe your musical style or your musical kind of preference? Oh, that's kind of difficult because, you know, being that I've been doing this since, I want to say... It was either 69, I guess it was 69 that I really started DJing. And that was even before disco had started. And then I played all through the disco years. But my influence as a teenager was very much the R&B sound. The first record I ever bought was uh, The Supremes, Baby Love. And I still play Dinah Ross now. So, you know, it's like that definitely led the way to the music that I love which really was the R&B sound. I love the soulful sounds. And so I did all the disco years, and then I was fortunate enough during the Riches years to introduce the first house night to Houston, which I called um, Hedonism. And uh, that became so successful with the uh, college-type crowd that I won over a whole new audience, and through that... Um, was invited to do radio show with starting off at uh, Kiss 98.5. The Hedonism Night was very famous. I remember growing up and just hearing about that and kind of knowing that this is a night in riches where it was kind of like the gay night. Well, it was kind of the, the, the straight night, but it was a training ground. So, you know, a lot of kids that thought they might be gay, it was a place for them to go and develop. And uh, I had the best time in the music for that. Um, and it was the first time in the city that there was a regular house night. House was born at Hedonism, really. I mean, the house was out there, of course. But in Houston, we didn't have a, a regular house night before then. And so a lot of the DJs now that are so big that came out of Houston used to come every Thursday night to Riches for Hedonism. And it's, it's very gratifying to see how 
wonderfully they've developed and gone on to become great DJs themselves and, and all over the world now, some of them are. So, yeah. How would you describe house music to people that may not know what that is? House music was the progression out of disco that got into a real groove. So you had all the elements of disco, but not necessarily going to a, a big vocal, although it can do, of course, and developed with a lot of samples from the music that went before. Developed in your house. So anybody can become a house producer and DJ if you've got the equipment at home. That's my favorite type of music, actually. You provided the soundtrack of me growing up in Houston. Ah, oh, that's nice to hear. When do you think the peak of nightlife in Houston happened? Or has it happened yet? Oh, I don't know about the future, but in the past, I would say the 90s was the peak. I think it's, when I see people, it's what they talk about the most was the 90s, musically. The 90s was the jam. Right, right. It really did. It, it was a big change. You know, we, we say house, but it... It was a feeling, you know, those tracks out there, house is a feeling, you know, kind of thing. But it really was a feeling. Very hard to describe. Well, what is house? As, as I said, I, I kind of gave you a little description before, but it's definitely a feeling. And there was a lot of camaraderie so, with the house people, you know. Who are your musical influences? You talked a little bit about Diana Ross, but who else? Oh, everybody from I, anybody on the Motown label. I loved all the big soul singers. Uh, my favorites are like Nina Simone. It's brilliant. Um, I personally love Randy Crawford, but I never really had much luck in crossing her over with the crowd here. But uh, I think she's amazing. I, I, being from England, uh, in the 70s in England, during the disco period, we also in Brighton played a lot of the jazzy uh, disco music, which I didn't notice much when I came over here. So I tried to introduce some of that as well. Um, and then in, in the 90s, it was all about the DJs and the DJ productions like Frankie Knuckles, David Morales, uh, Armand, mm -hmm. Armand Van Helden. There were so many and so many different styles. And I was very much part of the business by then. I knew everybody in the business. I, I became a billboard reporter when I was, I don't know, it, it was in 85 or 6 while at Riches. I do remember my very first number one record as a billboard reporter was running up that hill with Kate Bush by Kate Bush, which became a hit again this past mm. you know year. So, um, And I held it at number one for six weeks when I first became a billboard reporter. So it's kind of great to see, oh, the kids are getting back into the music that I loved back then. That was a classic time. If the dance floor is empty, what is your go-to floor filler song? I don't really think like that. Um, I, I don't want to have to, well, I guess if I'm playing disco, okay, it'll be something tragic like, uh, people will hate me for saying it's tragic, Gloria! <laughs> One of my pet hate records. Um, but in general, um, it's really hard to say. It depends which period. There are so many. Um, yeah, you kind of stumped me with that. That's good. That's, if I can stump you, I'm, I feel like I asked a good question. Right, so, you did. 
if there's anything about, about I go to sleep. if there's anything else you want our listeners to know about you and your career and the magical influence you've had on Houston that's what I'm very grateful to Houston I have had so much fun in this city playing for these fabulous people and when I uh I didn't say but uh when I started playing at Babylon I started I was already working at the mining company like on a Saturday night from nine till two. And then I would get my gang to carry my records over to Babylon at two o'clock. And then I would start up at two o'clock at Babylon and play till 10 in the morning. So um, I developed a really great following that became so incredibly loyal to me. It really gave me a different perspective on where DJing was heading. And now we see how devoted people are to different DJs. It's, it, it was the beginning of something, I think, a movement, a change in what a DJ was. And then, of course, we all got into production and I got into production. I worked with Dirty Disco for uh, five years on producing music. How has things changed over the years? What has kind of the change been like? I think that's the biggest thing is that the, um, the superstars at the beginning of my career were the artists, but now the superstars are the DJ. And who's your DJ that you kind of look up to? To me, David Morales. I, I think of all the DJs, he's my personal favorite. Uh, he influenced me more than any others, I think. And and I should add Danny Tanaglia. Uh, mm. He doesn't do much now in production-wise. He still DJs. But uh, he was a huge influence on me in the 90s. Yes, he was. What's next for J.D. Arnold? Well, that's the question, isn't it? I don't know. I really don't know. I am very satisfied with how my career has now ended and uh, open to suggestions. We've been speaking with the legendary DJ, J.D. Arnold of Rich's fame all over Houston, Babylon, Numbers, you name it, he's spun there. So, J.D., thank you for coming on. Well, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to thank the people of Houston. It's been a grand journey. And this is Queer Voices. I'm Kaylin Hardman. And I'm John Dyer V. With News Wrap. A summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending February 18th, 2023. Spain's trans people over the age of 16 will now be able to change their legally registered gender without medical intervention. Sweeping gender and sexuality related reforms approved by the Senate on February 16th also include employment, education, and housing rights for trans people as well as a ban on conversion therapy, expanded access to abortion, and paid menstrual leave. There were 191 votes in favor, 60 against, and 91 abstentions. The legislation had passed in the lower house of Spain's parliament in late December by a vote of 188 to 150. Some of Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez's Socialist Party MPs in the center-left coalition government were not on board, and right-wing party members were vocally opposed. A diagnosis of gender dysphoria and proof of at least two years of hormone treatment were previously required before the gender marker on government documents could be changed. The new laws allow people over 16 to make the change with a simple declaration. 
14 and 15-year-old trans teens will need the consent of parents or guardians, while 12 and 13-year-olds will additionally need a judge's approval. The legislation additionally allows 16 and 17-year-olds to undergo abortions without parental consent. Free menstrual products are required in schools and prisons, and access to free hormonal contraceptives in the morning after pill is required at state-run health centers. In a first for Europe, women suffering significant menstrual pain are entitled to paid leave. Equalities Minister Irena Moreno of the left-wing junior government coalition partner Podemos Party was the driving force behind the legislation. She stressed ahead of the Senate vote that followed sometimes contentious debate, trans people are not sick people, they are just people. Queer rights groups across the country were virtually unanimous in specifically praising the advances for transgender people. The North-South divide in the Anglican Communion is wider today, with the Church of England's decision to allow its priests to bless the marriages of same-gender couples. The Church is still refusing to allow those weddings on Church property. Anglican officials in Kenya and Uganda say the move has exacerbated the deepening gulf between the more theologically traditional congregations in the Global South and the relatively progressive branches in the North, according to the Washington Blade. In the opinion of Ugandan Archbishop Stephen Kazimba, the Church of England is embracing sin by recognizing homosexuality against God's word. To begin with, the Anglican Communion is a loose affiliation of generally independent Christian churches. The divide began in 2003 when the U.S. branch consecrated gay Episcopalian New Hampshire Bishop V. Jean Robinson. Since then, church leaders in Africa and South America have shown growing interest in the conservative breakaway Global Anglican Future Conference, or GAFCON. Atlanta-based GAFCON chair Archbishop Foley Beach has called for the resignation of the Anglican Communion's titular leader, Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. Beach charges Welby with endorsing what he calls erroneous and strange doctrine contrary to God's word. GAFCON's General Synod is scheduled to meet in April in Rwanda. More than 1,000 so-called Bible-believing Anglican clergy and laypeople from around the world are expected to attend, according to The Blade. Czech football star Jakub Jankto admitted in a February 13th social media video to having his strengths and weaknesses like everyone else. Like everybody else, I have a family. I have my friends. I have a job, which I've been doing it as best as I can for years with seriousness, professionalism, and passion. Like everybody else, I also want to live my life in freedom, without fears, without prejudice, without violence, but with love. I'm homosexual, and I no longer want to hide myself. That bold announcement made Yankto the first active international men's player to come out. The 27-year-old midfielder has played for the Czech Republic's national team since his debut in 2017. He currently competes professionally for Sparta Prague. The club's management issued a Twitter statement that Yankto had first come out to them, the coach, and his teammates. They added, You have our support. Live your life, Jakub. Nothing else matters. That sentiment has been echoed by many other players and officials around the world, including FIFA, football's global governing body. 
Yankto's Premier League tweeted, We're with you, Yakub. Football is for everyone. A gay Chechen refugee was arrested by Russian police on February 15th and has reportedly been returned to Chechnya to face two-year-old fraud allegations. 28-year-old Idris Arsamakov was nabbed at a Moscow airport on his way back to his adopted Dutch home after his father's funeral. Repeated anti-gay harassment and torture by authorities in the semi-autonomous, mostly Muslim Chechnya forced him to flee to the Netherlands in 2018. During the arrest, Arsamakov suffered a panic attack and an ambulance was called, according to the now Latvia-based Russian-language alternative news outlet Medusa. Itself deemed a foreign agent by the Putin regime, Medusa reports activists' concern that Arsamakov now faces mortal danger. That's News Wrap, global queer news with attitude, for the week ending February 18th, 2023. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappell, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you by you. Thank you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast, and much more. For This Way Out, I'm Kaylin Hardman. Stay healthy. And I'm John Dyer V. Stay safe. This has been Queer Voices, which is now a home-produced podcast and available from several podcasting sources. Check our webpage queervoices.org for more information. Queer Voices executive producer is Brian Lavinka. Andrew Edmondson and Deborah Moncrief-Bell are frequent contributors. The News Wrap segment is part of another podcast called This Way Out, which is produced in Los Angeles. Some of the material in this program has been edited to improve clarity and runtime. This program does not endorse any political views or animal species. Views, opinions, and endorsements are those of the participants and the organizations they represent. In case of death, please discontinue use and discard remaining products. For Queer Voices, I'm Glenn Holt. <laughs>